Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations. We have uh, made it almost through the first month of the new year, 2021, and we are now pivoting into a new direction with this podcast as we continue to discuss comic books, pop culture, um, mishmash it all together, all the stuff that, that, that mattered, some of the stuff that didn't. So much of what I grew up with in comics continues to be transformed into film now. Streaming television, uh, WandaVision, which I, I just watched and thoroughly enjoyed, but but again, uh, born in my era of collecting. Uh, Vision, Scarlet Witch, the miniseries. Vision, Scarlet Witch, the maxi series. Uh, Bill Mantlo, Richard Howell, Rick Leonardi, all this stuff. And uh, so it, it's really fun to see your childhood, I mean, 40 plus years back, get cherry-picked and presented um, you know, as a giant $200 million, at least that's what I just read, uh, you know, streaming series. So, so it's exciting. Comics are exciting. And, and we have, um, really been through so much of the weeds of the 1990s. Uh, I, I gave you the Heroes Reborn breakdown, which I'm, I'm sure there's stuff I, I, I left out that I'll eventually circle back around to. Fighting American, really the, this, this kind of long, extended part of my life that was about patriotic heroes, which I dig. I, I, li- I love patriotic char- characters and heroes. And in the next year, I'm doing one of the first, the first, The Shield. He uh, he of Archie Comics. Um, if you guys aren't, aren't familiar with Shield and the Crusaders, you will be. I'm going to get that out there in a big way. I love the story that I'm doing. Um, Snake Eyes is a wrap onto S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Crusaders and a bunch of Deadpool stuff in the in, in the in the future here. But my mid, mid-90s was really all about Captain America and then pivoting to Fighting American. If you, if you count that I entered into the deal to do Captain America in late 1994, that deal uh, was closed in 95. The books launched in 96. I left, uh, I left Captain America uh, by, by 97. And, uh, and, and, you know, on to Fighting American. And, and, and then uh, Fighting American had the rights to that through 98, 99. So yeah, huge part of my life is these patriotic heroes. But at that time, the comics industry had changed. We, we, we te- detailed the rise of Image Comics. The Owlboys, Lim Leifeld, Lee Larson. The Owlboys with uh, Todd McFarlane's scorecard, scorecard of the alphabet and uh, who had what letter in their last name. So we have covered so much of the 90s. To me, a lot of the highlights. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy to talk to you about Sandman. Uh, I would have to read one singular issue of Sandman to have a comprehensive uh, discussion with you about it. You know, I always appreciate when the talk show host has the guest on and says, I'm sorry, I didn't see the movie, but, but I, I love you and I'm excited about, I'm, I'm excited to see it, but the movie coming out this Friday that you're promoting, I have, I, I had it, they gave it to me, the digital download, the disc, whatever, but I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. I appreciate that they don't try and muster some false enthusiasm. I did not read Sandman. Um, I understand the Sandman popularity and fans. I get it. It's, um, you know, it's just not a book that I interacted with. And I respect Neil Gaiman. I have read a lot of Neil Gaiman's work. I just didn't read Sandman. So I know that was a big staple of the 90s. And uh, Heroes Reborn, Image Comics, X-Men, X-Force, Cable, Deadpool, um, you know, Valiant. We talked about Deathmate. We talked about Deathmate. We went down the Deathmate road. That was a giant event that got, again, 
you got to judge these events by the response they got from both the fans and the retailers. And those were books that were ordered very heavily. That uh, They were expensive comics, thick, uh, uh, what do you call them, the, the, the Dark Knight format. The, the, they were perfect bound and, uh, you know, not not your normal comic. I think they were like five bucks. So I mean, it was that they were they moved a lot of um, moved a lot of needles. Got people excited. For me, I've always followed the talent. Really, more than the titles, I follow the talent. That's that's what I I still I mean I still I maintain today. I'll see anything Martin Scorsese directs. I'll pick up anything Robert Kirkman writes. I uh, I follow the talent. And and uh, the thing about the late '90s is the talent the talent was tired. And speaking directly to the fact that the talent was tired, and yeah, I, I'm not talking about Marvels or Kingdom Come either. Those aren't, those aren't like, you know, particularly. Um, they're well crafted. They're really well done. Marvels in particular is spectacular. I, I, I hold Marvels um, for the way it worked backwards with this, you know, reporter photographer, and the images that he took, and seeing the Marvel universe rise from his perspective. That I, I think is the is the tougher of the two. Kingdom Come took a lot of the stuff from Dark Knight from Alan Moore's Twilight and made an exciting, um, if not completely comprehensive story. Alex Ross illustrating it is the bonus on both. I mean, right. The, the pictures are so pretty and beautiful. Uh, but I don't, you know, there was a, there was a discussion on a Facebook group the other day about what is your favorite series or run in the nineties. And I, it's so funny, you guys, there isn't a consensus at all. One guy will say Sandman, Another guy will say Sin City, and then some people cherry pick their favorite, you know, issues of Avengers or of a uh, of of X Men. But but by and large, the answers are completely inconsistent. Um, nothing is is really there's no consensus. And 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 I weighed in part of this group, and I said, guys, the, the '90s did not have a Dark Knight or a Watchmen. As much as you wish it were so, it did not. It had a lot of exciting stuff. And to me, the '90s was about movements. It was about movements. The image movement, the X-Men movement, the Valiant movement, you know, the independent movement, which gave us bravura, bravura, who who calls themselves bravura, okay? Uh, that will be the earworm of my life. Bravura! So Valiant, bravura, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of independent stuff. Heroes Reborn, okay? Deathmate, they were movements. It was movements and, and, and I guess you would say events. But we didn't set out to make Image Year One an event. It just became an event by by virtue of the books that we published excited so many people. So I said, for my, I'm weighing in, and my most significant like run or or event um, of of the '90s is Year One Image Comics, Youngblood, Spawn, Dragon, Wildcat, Shadowhawk, Cyberforce, Wetwork, Supreme Brigade, all of them, all of them. That that is the most exciting. We built a universe. We built a tremendous fan base. We we had a customer base that had retailers going absolutely out of their minds. It was really um, just, just so much fun. And so for me, the 90s, you know, 92 to 93, that, that image comics movement was the best. But the reason I'm bringing that up is that was defined by talent. It was defined by talent. And, uh, when I liked the X-Men, it had really exceptional talent on it. When I liked an issue of Wildcats, Travis Charest was, you know, knocking me in the teeth with how amazing he illustrated it. The, the, it really would fluctuate back and forth uh, my interest in anything based on the talent. When we were asked 
to take over Avengers, Captain America, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man. It's because fans weren't following the talent on those books. And then when we took them over, some of the most, we were the most accomplished. We may not be your most, your favorite talents, but we were accomplished. We were a safe bet and we delivered. Then Marvel goes into bankruptcy. That's a giant memory of the 90s. Um, You know, really, as I've told you guys, over some just crazy amounts of mismanaging. I mean, really massive amounts of mismanaged business in terms of consuming sticker companies, toy companies, you know, trading card companies. It all just came tumbling down because, uh, you know, the, the, the mismanagement of the brand. And then they had to go file bankruptcy course correct. And uh, then they came out of it and they set their course for what will be where we're pivoting and, 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 and going to inch towards starting today, the 2000s. But to me, the end of the 90s is um, really m- more than anything was one phone call. The phone call for me that said, yep, we're done. And my good buddy, Jeff Loeb, who uh, I worked with at Awesome Comics. And at the time he was still writing The Coven, a book I was publishing through Awesome, and we still um, talked every day. Jeff became quickly one of my favorite people in my life, comics or none. He's he's so entertaining and charismatic and funny. And uh, we talked all the time. And and, uh, he had a lot of uh, insider knowledge. He was back at DC doing a whole bunch of really great uh, uh, comics. He was preparing to take over the Superman line. He was wrapping up his his uh, Batman uh, uh, Dark Victory, which was the sequel to Batman: The Long Halloween, and and so he he was absolutely uh, just you know really really doing some great stuff over at DC Comics, and and people were really enjoying the work he was doing. He was also doing a uh, I think it was called The Witching Hour, maybe with uh, with with Chris Pacello. It was a two two issue again, um, Perfect Bound. Uh, uh, a prestige limited series, which, which was going to, again, cost you about four ninety five. So, So Jeff was really in the weeds back at, uh, at DC Comics, given his Batman assignment and the prestige that, uh, of both the witching hour and of, of his, his work that he was doing with Tim Sale, which was winning all sorts of acclaim, accolades, and, and doing big numbers in sales. So Jeff was in the know. Jeff was absolutely in the know. And again, we had worked so tightly with each other for the better part of three years from Heroes Reborn to the launch of Awesome. And Jeff would say to me, Robert, I learned about publishing from you. I learned about paper stock. I learned about all the different ins and outs of distribution and of marketing and of printing. Um, and, and and look, it, it was mutual. I learned so much from Jeff. I learned so much of his savvy in managing talent, in managing opportunities. We were We made a great and fun pair and couple. And we had so much, so much, um, fun together. And, and so I got the dreaded phone call and on that phone call was Robert, Robert, Jim Lee has sold Wildstorm to DC comics. Jim, Jim Lee has sold Wildstorm to DC comics. And I'm like, what do you mean Jim Lee sold Wildstorm to DC Comics? Now, here's the deal. Jim Lee had been shopping Wildstorm for the better part of a couple of years. You guys remember in the throes of Heroes Reborn, Jim was trying to get Marvel, the um, uh, to, to, to get Ron Perlman, who was, you know, 
running Marvel at the time to get to, to have Jim installed as publisher and uh, the head of the entire Marvel division to have them move Marvel to La Jolla where his Wildstorm offices were. Now, I know this because Larry Martyr, who was the publisher of Image Comics, was there. He was part of it. Jeff Loeb was part of it because Jim had contacted Jeff. Um, again, Jeff was a really savvy guy. I had boots on the ground, eyes on the prize. They were there. I have witnesses. It was the greatest, no one ever talked about it ever again thing that Jim did. He did it in the dark of night. Ron Perlman, Mr. Gazillionaire, owner of Marvel and all of its debt, flies out to La Jolla, tours the La Jolla offices. And the La Jolla offices were certainly nice. They were on a nice uh, piece of property, cliffside, really nice art deco, beautiful. Uh, we had a couple image meetings there. And so Jim was trying to turn Fantastic Four and Iron Man and the Heroes Reborn buzz into um, I can do this for your entire line, go to move everything to the West Coast, cut your costs in New York. So there's all this crazy stuff going down. And again, now I can tell you also, I mean, I've, I've told you guys, Bill Jemis, who would go on to become the publisher of Marvel Comics in the 2000s, told me to my face in the summer of 2000, I killed that. I killed that deal. I walked into Ron Perlman's office and said, you can't do this. This is not the way to go. We, we can shore up things from, from our end here. And uh, because Bill Jemis had been working with the, uh, the, the card licensing, whether it was Skybox, Tops, he was uh, part of the uh, trading card division licensing, and he had a voice, and he made his voice heard, and he proudly, uh, while chomping his Philly cheesesteak, told me, I killed that deal. I killed that deal. You never know who you don't know who is working at cross-purposes with you. And trust me, the, the, this haunts every job. Having a healthy paranoia is good. You've always got to be um, looking past kind of what's right in front of you because there's always forces behind you that may be acting against the interest, that e even when you think everything is going your way. I think my, my career, as I've presented to you guys, is a testament to exactly that. So Jim got, um, what, for lack of a better term, cock-blocked on Marvel. And uh, was I know for a fact he was semi-reeling in that instance because not only did that not happen, now that power was seized away from him and the focus on him was moved, they told him because Jim, like myself, had been offered a second year of Heroes Reborn. Uh, I was adding, uh, I, I believe I was, I know Punisher was one of the books and Stephen Platt was going to draw it and we we kind of worked up a proposal. Um, Jim was talking about Silver Surfer and a team-up book like Marvel 2 and one So he was extending his Fantastic Four brand and then going cosmic with Surfer, which would have been great to see. I think Jim's entire idea was, well, if I can push Rob out and, and act against Rob, then I will be able to get all of the Heroes Reborn. Because certainly when the idea that I was leaving the Heroes Reborn books, they said to me, the Sheryl Rhodes, Sheryl, my good friend Sheryl, who took over for, um, for Tom King and Jerry Calabrese, who set it all in motion. This new guy, Sheryl Rhodes, I read you the letter. Go back and read those Heroes Reborn. Listen to those Heroes Reborn podcasts. I, I have never had a better response to any story I've ever told in person, online, on this podcast than I have on those Heroes Reborn episodes. So go back, listen to those, check those out, get acclimated with that, that story because at the end, now they're in bankruptcy. Cheryl Rhodes is the new publisher. He tells me, 
your sales of 250,000, which is, you know, I took over the book and the book was doing, you know, 24,000. Captain America was doing 24,000. But they're like 250,000, which was top of the top of the line in the comics industry at the time. It's falling short of our expectations. You know, they just pick a reason. Pick a reason. <clears throat> they wanted me to do the book for less. We want you to do this book, but for a lot less than we've contractually agreed to. And if not, we're going to give it to Jim. And I'm like, come on, I'm not, I don't operate like that. Give it to, uh, my thing was, I'm out. I said my piece. I told my stories. Go ahead and give them to Jim. Jim then gave them to nobody you really cared about because the thing I hear all the time is the back six of Avengers and Captain America were tremendously disappointing. That's the fans telling me that. Jim went to, uh, like I said, went to the lowest bidder, got cheap talent, pocketed as much of the remaining budget money. Let's say they were going for a budget uh, from $50,000, $45,000 a book to $20,000 a book. Jim made sure he spent $10,000 a book and maybe pocketed $10,000, $12,000. That's just how it goes. That's that's budgeting. That's how you make money on your uh, book budget when you're getting paid by someone else. And Jim was, in fact, engaging in that. And basically, more than anything, he went to a bunch of guys who had been doing uh, Marvel Comics prior to us coming on board. There was nothing special. Aside from maybe one issue, you know, by a Wills Portacio, he really didn't, he, he went to, I, I think, Tom Rainey, which, who Tom's fine, but Tom was working with Marvel and DC before we got there. He didn't need, Marvel didn't need Jim to, to pick Tom Rainey out. What we were bringing were the Chap Yaps, the Stephen Platts, the Wills Portacios, the, the special talents that were unaccessible, not accessible to Marvel at the time new, fresh vision, fresh voices. So those books kind of played out um, in, a, in a fashion that was very safe. They, they, they're, they're fine comics. They're very safe comics. And, and safe wasn't what the deal was about. We were supposed to be bold and exciting. And I stand by all the work that I did on Cap and the Avengers. It was bold. It was exciting. It was fun. But Jim, I think, believed I'll get not only, I'll wrap up the, you know, issue six, I'm sorry, seven to 12 of these books. And then they're going to give me a year two. And and I know, obviously, Jeff Loeb was a guy on the inside telling me, no, Jim is playing for year two. He wants to go from four books to eight books, at the very least six books. Add Surfer, Marvel 2-in-1, Punisher, whatever. Well, they inform him after giving him the lower budgets that I wouldn't accept and saying, continue on with these Heroes Reborn books. Jim then is informed, oh, we're not coming back to you. We're done. At 12, we say goodbye. You are back on your merry way. Marvel's doors are closed to you. We are maintaining control. Heroes Return was the event they were planning. The books were coming back. Uh, Kurt Busiek and George Perez and and, and uh, Chris Claremont and Salvador La Roca. I mean, they, they were pivoting away from all of it. No longer was it, um, maybe you get a piece of this. It was all or nothing, and Jim got nothing when all was said and done. The deal was done, and there was no taking over from La Jolla, and there was no turning four books into six books into eight books. It was done. They closed their doors. I think they were like, that's dangerous. Jim's dangerous. We let him in the door to do this, and he went full, you know, tried to seize the kingdom. And you know what would be funny is if in 10 years Jim is running Marvel Comics, and we can all, you know, pull these out and go, well, it took him, you know, just 30 years longer than he wanted, but he got there. He got to where he wanted to go. Because uh, if you think about it, Jim as an executive officer at DC Comics has now been a thing for almost 23 years. Jim has been at DC longer than he was at anything, longer than he was at Wildstorm, at Image, at Marvel. So, I mean, again, the executive life is kind of, and Todd called it, 
Todd McFarlane told me early in the 90s, Jim wants to be a business guy. Jim wants to be an executive. And uh, here he is. He's an executive. And Jeff Loeb calls me in 1998. Jim has sold Wildstorm to DC Comics. Well, I had heard because we shared an agent at the biggest agency. I still, I'm pretty sure creative artist agencies in, in the business called CAA. Tom Cruise was their client. Steven Spielberg was their client. And for a brief period, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld were their clients. They called me up and said, what's, what's, what's Jim doing? We told him he, not to make and finance that Gen 13 movie. That is, is bleeding red ink everywhere. Jim is, my, I, literally my agent's like, Rob, Rob. I can't get a hold of Jim. What was he thinking? What what what, what was he thinking? And uh, the Gen 13 movie was a huge problem in that they were never able to release it because Disney bought the rights to the live action film. And I am in a meeting in 1998 at Disney on the Burbank lot where you go past the dwarves and you go into the nice suite. And I was going up to pitch a film and... I walked by the hall and they, they paused and they said, oh, this is, and it was a nice lady they introduced me to, and she's head of straight to DVD theatrical and, um, and animation. And I was like, oh, so are you guys going to be releasing that Gen 13 DVD movie? I'm standing there, right there facing her, knowing that this this uh, Gen 13 cartoon, couple million bucks poured into this thing. It's got women in their underwear, women smoking, uh, grunge, and you're like, Rob, that's not a big deal. You're right. It's not a big deal under any other circumstances unless Disney buys the live action rights to the same property. Show me how many women are smoking on Disney Plus ever or in their underwear in the locker room smoking, okay? That's just not going to happen. That's a different domain. Would Sony release that? Would Paramount release that? Yes, they would. But Disney took a live action um the live action rights to Gen 13 to make a movie. And I asked, because I'm like, well, that's a great, you know, hand in glove, back to back and forth. They're going to release Gen 13 as a movie and have the cartoon. And she says, that cartoon is shelved indefinitely. And by indefinitely, I mean, it's shelved forever. And I was like, whoa. Now you guys know, maybe you attended the Wizard World Chicago premiere of Gen 13 in a tent with folded chairs, because that's where it was shown um, but it never got released. It did not get released. That woman was true to her word. Um, it has maybe someday, you know, when Disney Plus needs that extra 100,000 um, subscribers, they will put the Gen 13 cartoon out. But that cartoon, like, I pulled out of financing my own cartoons because those costs can run away from you fast and you need to be a big, giant corporation. But other than that, the Wildstorm books weren't selling. The sales were soft. All of that late 90s era swoon was coming to home to roost uh, less sales you've got now a giant real estate la jolla um you know monument uh that, that you have 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 built um on this cliff these really nice art deco offices the overhead trust me i've run a studio i know the cost of air conditioning 24 7 because your staff wants to work from midnight to 6 7 a.m and they want that air conditioning on all the time um lights are on all the time overhead in an art studio especially a swank art studio licenses jim had started doing trading cards doing and and, and that had kind of fallen out of favor across the board everybody so jim was looking for a buyer i know because new line looked at him because they had looked at me jim went to the guy who um had financed awesome comics he went to them and asked them well would you 
uh, by me. I know that maybe things didn't work out in the way that you wanted with Awesome. But in a situation like this, everyone's talking. None of the major studios, none of the networks, nobody was buying Jim. So at the end of the day, Paul Levitz came through, delivered for his buddy, and saved Jim and gave him this deal, which was really, and this was told over and over and over, what they really wanted was Jim. They wanted Jim Lee. They wanted the talent. They wanted the penciling legend. And honestly, that's what they got after Jim went on sabbatical for three years. After they, you know, Jim, once the deal is done, goes into a cave. Uh, does not reemerge really until Batman Hush in 2002. So there's like a four-year, and I believe on a five-year contract, and you have to do 12 issues. Maybe you just wait till the last year of that contract to deliver. Okay. And then you negotiate a new management contract. But Jeff Loeb calls me. Jim Lee has sold to Wildstorm. No one knows this. This is this has not broken anywhere. This is not, Wizard does not know this. There are no websites. If there were, it, it would have leaked. But I decided, well, hell, I'm going to call my buddies from Image because it sure sounds like they don't know what's going down. The one guy at Image that I continued to talk to, and I always, again, follow the talent, follow his work, and Eric Larson was so productive during this time. He had gone to Marvel to to write Wolverine. He was writing Aquaman at DC. He was doing Nova at Marvel. Um, he was still doing Savage Dragon. Eric had diversified and had the widest um, menu of options and projects that I've ever known him to have at this time. So naturally it shows and whatever. I still had a relationship with Eric. I liked Eric. Um, uh, you know, my buddy Jeff Loeb always said, why wouldn't they just let you leave? Why didn't they just let you leave? He always was offended how they treated me when I left because he just didn't understand why they didn't just let me walk away peacefully. And, you know, one of the uh, security blankets, especially Todd has talked about this. He thought, well, we've still got Jim. Jim has the prestige. Jim has the numbers. We've got Wildstorm. Again, J Rob and Jim together were doing 42 titles a month. If you lose Rob's 22, then Jim's still doing 20. So we've split the baby. We still have that. Well, I knew these guys didn't know. So I call Eric Larson. It is about 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. Eric answers, hello. I said, Eric, it's Rob. Did you know? Let me cut straight to the chase. Jim Lee has sold Wildstorm to DC Comics. He is no longer with Image. What is the response that I received? I was leaning up against my drawing board, standing, standing, leaning up against my elevated drawing board, looking out the window when I said this. And Eric goes, you're, you're, what, are you, what are you talking about? I said, Eric, I am dead serious. Jim Lee has sold Wildstorm to, Image, to, to DC Comics. He has sold Wildstorm to DC Comics. He is gone. He sold to DC. I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, I got to go, man. I got to go. Click. And I knew that the next round of phone calls was Todd, Mark, Jim Valentino. And they were all going to be informed that Jim had left the building. And Jim had indeed left the building. Jim was gone for whatever amount that DC paid him. Paul Levitz came through and said, come fold in with us. We'll take your, we'll take your Wildstorm books. We'll take all that stuff. And much in the same way that, uh, Marvel consumed Ultraverse. Uh, for the for the most part, they put all of that stuff in a box and let it sink to the bottom of the ocean. Um, the relationship that Alan Moore had built up with Jim post awesome taking all Alan basically took Supreme and Glory and Youngblood and what he wanted to do and he transformed them into Tom Strong, Promethea, Top Ten, which is great. It was fun to watch. And those were critically acclaimed, but Alan had a hard line 
that he never ever wanted to work with DC again. And now he had to, you know, negotiate that this this situation existed that DC was in fact not only publishing, making all the profits off what he was doing going forward as predicted that fell apart within about a year and a half because Alan's no dummy and he figured it out and there was no firewall. The firewall didn't exist. Just, you know, you can stand on top of the logo and say, but I'm Jim, you're working with me, not DC, but underneath you is the foundation of everything that you are now. And that is what Alan ultimately saw through. And despite his great working relationship with guys like Scott Dunbier at Wildstorm, Alan flew the coop. The rest of the characters have had a very spotty relationship in regards. They've been, you know, Stormwatch has been attempted. Wildcats have been attempted. They're never really great, hard attempts. They're kind of, let's, let's, let's knit together some available talent, some exciting takes, and take a flyer on this. Jim himself even returned for one issue of Wildcats, but the Orders were not what he anticipated having teamed up with Grant Morrison, so Jim did not return to do any further issues. It was one, it was done, it was, we launched here, everything underneath here is going to be much less than we anticipated, and I was asked to do a cover for, like, Wildcats 3. Mark Silvestri was asked to do a cover for Wildcats 2 during this time. It was, the plug pulled, Jim didn't like the numbers, it it, it just, it wasn't there. It was the result of years of those characters being kind of set in the trunk and dropped to the bottom of the ocean. And so, I mean, that's what that's the risk you take. And when you when you sell something, you run the risk that they will be um, completely and 100% uh, uh, vanished because the priority, those characters aren't the priority. Maybe the coloring crew that you have is the priority. Maybe the, you know, talent that you can bring with them is the talent is the priority. Maybe the talent you yourself can provide is the priority. And with, with Jim, it was always about Jim himself personally. And he delivered on that performance contract outside of a few co- covers. He then did interiors starting in 2002 with Hush, which I always feel like Hush was the third part of the Tim Sale, Jeff Loeb, uh, Long Halloween, Dark Victory trilogy. It just ended up being drawn by Jim instead of Tim. And that's, you know, a story for another time. But when that call came through that Jim was no longer going to be publishing with Image, I knew that that was like the 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 table could stand with the three legs after I left, but you can't rip another leg and, and a table can't stand with two legs at, from any perspective. There is no balance. And Image kind of went into what they would have, I would see as their darkest period until Robert Kirkman arrives um, and turns everything around with them given The Walking Dead. Now, again, the late 90s is a bunch of guys are burned out. Mark Silvestri is nowhere near as prolific. Dale Keown is gone. Um, uh, can't even get into the United States because of a bunch of arrests and, and a criminal record. And 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 trust me, I had, I had some issues with Dale. And... Uh, and, and, and then you've got uh, Wills Portacio, tired, Todd McFarlane not working. Um, you know, a lot of the talent was standing down. They were not producing work because the 90s, and I will say it again, and people who know me know I've said this, and I've been working up to saying this, and it's the best line. I don't know his name, the doctor, the corporation, the guy in Blade Runner, okay? When, uh, when uh, uh, the clone... Uh, that, you know, goes to Rutger Hauer, Rutger Hauer goes to see the doctor and the doctor very eerily lit, spectacular says, you know, the light that burns twice as bright burns out twice as fast. 
and you, Roy, have burned oh so very bright. The light that burns twice as bright, you know, burns out twice as fast. I'm, you know, uh, uh, paraphrasing that line, but again, it's why the lifespan of Roy, Rutger Hauer, and um, the replicants was so limited. And, and, and but the way he smiles, and you have burned so very bright, Roy. The 90s, we burned bright, man. From, from 1990 on, most of us, it was 89, 88. For Todd, Jim, myself, Mark, Eric, we took off, rode that rocket, okay? We rode that rocket like slim pickings, riding that missile in Dr. Strange Glove, okay? We were riding that thing. We burned so very bright, Roy. And so eventually you get burnout. It's like a band who toured and toured and toured. And then you're like, man, they haven't toured in five years. That's because they're burned out. They're tired. Okay. And sometimes people turn on each other and sometimes people look to exit. And like I said, Jim, the writing was on the wall. He was looking for another partner, somebody to take the company off his hands, take the debt away. Gen 13, the animated film had bled him dry. The sales weren't there. He needed the life raft. Paul Levitz was there to provide it after all the other media companies um, were not available. And, you know, the rest is, um, is, is really, for me, the door slammed on the 90s. Jim immediately, like I said, went into hibernation. He signed the deal. He did some wizard covers. He did a couple of DC covers. But as far as extended interiors, he, he didn't, he, he, he wasn't there until Hush. He went into hibernation. I really think the burnout factor was just as strong in him as it was with any of us. And him leaving, now you got you don't have Rob and you don't have Jim in Image Comics. And you have a severely weakened Image Comics. Eric Larson is having a blast, you know, taking uh, his Savage Dragon popularity and love to, again, to Marvel, to DC. He's doing all sorts of projects. Mark has withdrawn. Todd is publishing Spawn, but not a part of Spawn. He's not drawing Spawn. Um, I mean, Todd literally did not draw an interior Spawn comic for 20 some years. And here's the deal, guys, you got to love to do interiors. That's got to be something that burns within you. It's got to be burning inside you. Travis Charest, someone who we all, we all love, that's C-H-A-R-E-S-T. Maybe you call him Charest, Charest, whatever. I, I was told it's Travis Charest. We can just call him Travis. Travis uh, was beautiful. His work was at a complete apex in that Wildcats X-Men crossover, but he stood down. He, uh, he, he, he wasn't doing as much work. J. Scott Campbell wasn't doing as much work. Joe Matiero wasn't doing as much work. All of these books, by 98, 99, the talent has really, the talent that carried the 90s has gone into hibernation. And, uh, and, and, and the door that was slammed shut is DC is now part of DC Comics. And Image Comics is without two of their founding partners, two of the guys that started the company that, that electrified uh, uh, an entire decade, and for me, was the biggest movement of the entire decade. So that is, for me, the door slammed shut, and and really the the light going out on the candle. We burned so very bright, Roy, um, but 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 we burned out twice as fast, half as long. Burns burns twice as bright, burns half as long, and that was the '90s, and that was it for then. In the 2000s, we're knocking on the door. The 2000s. That early 2000s, oh boy, and all of their crazy tricks, surprises, and 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 shenanigans awaited, um, and they were right in front of us, and they were in sight, and 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 that's that that is that is the destination, and where we are headed 
for, for, for this podcast as it continues as we pivot into the 2000s. So on a related note, as uh, things were winding down in the 90s, I had uh, I was doing some awesome comics. I'm still publishing some of my own work, but inspired by seeing what Eric Larson was doing when he was doing a couple of books for Marvel, a couple of books for DC, in addition to Savage Dragon, I had been making some calls. I had been um, inquiring about some some what would, could be called bucket list items. And the other week I was recounting this to my wife, my lovely wife, Joy, and she said, you you should tell these stories about, about these, you know, the jobs you didn't get, the gigs that you, that weren't available to you. She goes, you should share that on your podcast. And I go, man, that is, that's a good idea. She's, she's right on the money because again, it's not always, you know, rainbows and, 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 and unicorns, you know, that there, there are times even in one's prime that, uh, opportunities are not available to you. They are not presented or with, withheld. And, uh, so, so I thought this would be a great little side topic to end with today, um, in regards to the jobs that got away, the jobs that, that I was not able to do. I've, I've told you guys of, you know, I was very, um, excited to be offered a bunch of work right when I got to Marvel and, and whether that was the Hulk or Dr. Strange that I um, passed on, um, well, there are stories, there are jobs that passed on me. So why not open that up, be honest, and and share some of those. And, and I, I got to be honest, I got to go way back to when I first got hired in 1987. And, and you know, Marvel had immediately given me the Zodiac uh, Marvel Universe handbook stuff to do in the Book of the Dead that they were doing. The, the, they had their Marvel Universe handbook that was now going to show all of the characters that had passed away that are no longer with us. And so I, I got the Zodiac, which was great. It was 12 different individual drawings. It was a great indoctrination to, to comic books. And then DC had actually gotten me my first story, which was a bonus book in the back of Warlord. And then that got me this Secret Origins uh, book. They had a book called Secret Origins where they would give you Secret Origins, sometimes to an issue of several of DC's characters. And I had gotten Nightshade, of uh, who, who was featured in Suicide Squad at the time. And so I had just completed that. That was like a 20 page story. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I had just done, I just booked two jobs for DC and I knew Hawk and Dove was coming. They had now told me that Hawk and Dove was going to be my gig, but there was some time in between. Um, the writers, the Kiesels had not yet handed in the first issue. I think they were still in the process of actually scheduling where Hawk and Dove would be released and, and, and creating budgets. The scheduling creates the budgets, you know, that they allot to each project and, and what they need for each quarter. So, I mean, there's a business side to this that sometimes you have to wait on. And, uh, in the meantime, they were starting to do fill-ins and quite a few, as a matter of fact, on what I believed at the time was not only DC's most popular comic book, but, but comic books, most popular comic book. And, uh, believe you me from 19, 80, end of 86, all the way through about 88, uh, for two solid years, the hottest book on the planet in comic books was Justice League by Keith Giffen, J.M. Matisse, and Kevin McGuire. And, uh, I, I'm telling you the combo, this, this kind of avant-garde, irreverent lineup of the Justice League a lot of people liked it for the laughs and and for the humor, which was great. It it's kind of remembered as being more of a funny book 
than I think it was. It really had a, a, a its feet firmly planted in an action adventure, straightforward superhero story, but it never failed to take a wink, a nod, or the piss out of the situation and to stop and make light of something. And part of this was helped by the amazing art of Kevin Maguire. I have always been completely blown away by the work that Kevin was able to do. He hit the comic scene just like a lightning bolt. His 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 ability to create facial expressions, just very tight, clean pencil work, great figure drawing. I mean, he's drawing a group book, so there's a lot of faces, a lot of interaction, a lot of detail. Loved his style. Loved his style from the minute I set eyes on it. And uh, the Justice League lineup, I also believe, is one of the reasons why the book was so popular. For me, Guy Gardner was you know, another one of the Green Lantern Corps here on Earth that uh, especially had been making a a resurgence in the regular Hal Jordan uh, Green Lantern book that Joe Staten and Dave Gibbons had been illustrating over the last few years. Len Wein had been writing it. And, uh, you know, Guy Gardner was always kind of a butthead or an asshole. He was very um, arrogant, smarmy, overly uh, uh, certain of himself and uh, you know his portrayal was was enough to make him memorable but he did not become I think iconic until this Justice League run because they chose Guy Gardner instead of your traditional Boy Scout you know that was Hal Jordan you now got this complete asshole who had somehow uh, in the lore become worthy of this 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 power ring another one of the you know green lantern protectors and so guy gardner being really kind of like the the wolverine the snark the hot temper um really obnoxious of of the justice league and then you had in contrast captain marvel shazam which was the most boy scout you know, golly gee whiz version of him that I had seen and Kevin drew him <clears throat> remarkably. Just a, a, a amazing portraits and, and a great contrast in the Captain Marvel as Boy Scout and the Guy Gardner as complete asshole. There was Captain Adam, there was Black Canary, obviously there was Batman. And one of the most infamous scenes is when Batman lays out uh, Guy Gardner, I think it's in issue four or five, just punches him in the face, knocks him down as, as Guy Gardner is kind of threatening to take action against Batman using his ring before that even gets off the ground. It's a classic cover. It's a classic moment. And Batman just flattens him with just a straight up punch in the face. And yet Guy Gardner was a terrific component, also very powerful on the team. But again, we were not being served Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. It was... This uh, Batman was kind of your your grounding force among the team, which again had Captain Adam, uh, Fire and Ice, uh, Black Canary, uh, Shazam slash Captain Marvel, Guy Gardner. It was really a fun lineup. They, 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 but the art over over everything was, I think, what was setting that book apart. McGuire just he he had a brand new style uh, in, in regards to his his focus on facial expressions and facial features really became i mean i it influenced every everybody afterwards i mean people really saw wow if i can really hone in on these um subtle smirks and grimaces and just kevin had a mastery of the face obviously had a mirror in front of him at all times manipulating 
his own face to get these great uh, facial uh, features and expressions that he was carrying onto these very popular characters, the Justice League. And they had really cool adventures. And, uh, you know, uh, it was just a great, it was just a great comic. It was really fun, really well told. Um, big, epic confrontations, always the dose of humor and a lighthearted maybe take on what, what, what was going on. Well, they were starting to do fill-in issues. Kevin had done a bunch of comics, had done a, a bunch of issues in a row, and they were starting to book fill-ins. And um, everybody from Bill Willingham to Ty Templeton uh, and, and, and Eric Shannon were now, if you guys are listening and you don't know who those guys are, that's okay. Um, you know, Bill Willingham is probably the most prominent of them. He had written and created and drawn a series called The Elementals, which was a fantastic uh independent comic that took everybody by storm. It was kind of this independent uh, take on the Fantastic Four, really, because you had a rock character, an air character, a water character, and a uh, a fire character. But Elementals was kind of, it was adult, it was action-packed, and it was really well-drawn. And Bill kind of had his roots in John Byrne style. I would definitely say when I was a kid, I would associate Bill Willingham's work, his line art, his expression in a vein that was uh, uh, sister or at least a kissing cousin to what John Byrne was doing. So having him fill in for uh, Kevin McGuire wasn't exactly them trying to match styles. Ty Templeton had been an inker who had then been a penciler and inker, and he had done some, again, uh, independent work too. I think he had done a book called Dante's Inferno, and uh, he was just starting to get some mainstream jobs. And so he eventually got hired, and then Eric Shanower was also doing independent uh, comics and they hired him, and he kind of maybe of all of them was the most to in, in terms of an attempt to match up a style. He, he he kind of had a very pretty, clean line like Kevin and could do the facial expressions not as good as Kevin, but in, in the range. So I worked up a bunch of samples. I worked up samples of the, uh, the, the, the Justice League trying to show that I could also mimic what McGuire was doing. And I, to this day, I look at those samples and I have no idea why I wasn't given at least a 22 page fill in. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm literally right after that, I do Hawk and Dove. My career did very well. Hawk and Dove went over very well. It rocketed me into the position where I would go do the X-Men office. So I'm not looking back with some wishful thinking. I'm looking back literally going, I could have done an issue of Justice League, uh, and, and I think it would have been accepted as well, if not better, than the Ty Templeton, the Bill Willingham, and the Eric Shanor. Um, so so that is my view at the time. And I kept sending pages in, kept making calls, trying to get the editor, Andy Helfer, to give me a shot. I mean, I just uh, I just felt like, again, I could I, it would be a blast to do a fill-in on these characters that were my favorites. And I had the time because, you know, I was, I was really not working at the time while I was waiting for them to get me the formal plot of Hawk and Dove. So then there was a Secret Origins, back to Secret Origins, issue that was going to tell the Secret Origin of the Justice League and how it would pertain and be kind of formatted, fitted to what they were doing now. I think even Keith Giffen was behind that. So there was continuity between the creative teams, but McGuire was not drawing drawing that. So I then asked to see if I could, you know, become the artist on that story. Anything to do this version or get as close to this version of the Justice League as I possibly could. And again, just rebutted, re rebuked, told no, um, 
wasn't a good time. I wasn't the right fit, whatever. So at that point, I was like, wow, that's it's crazy. There a couple months went by when I could have been drawing something, but I drew nothing and waited to, um, you know, get my, the assignment that would really change my life with, with Hawk and Dub. So, you know, it all worked out doing a Justice League fill-in would not have precluded me from doing Hawk and Dub. want to make that very clear. It was just, I was looking to add work while I was in between gigs. So, you know, that is the first of the big, uh, you know, you can't, have this as Borat's uh, in the in the original Borat when when Borat says that his you know his uh, uh, brother was was in the cage and and the daughter the sister would always say you will never have this you will never have this and then one day he have this okay <laughs> I love Bear you will never have this you will never have this and then one day he have this uh, regarding anyway. So, so that, 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 uh, I never had this. I, I never, I never, I never had this. They truly did, uh, you know, stand outside my cage with Justice League and say, you will never have this. You will never have this. And uh, unlike Borat's brother, uh, I did not have this. So moving on, uh, Marvel was great. Got, got, you know, wonderful experience. Uh, then from Marvel and New Mutants and X-Force and the launch of Image and an entire, you know, treasure trove of toys that I created for myself that I can still play with at any time. Um, you know, my, my, the, the, the catalog of characters that I created was so vast. Uh, the stuff that I have available to me today, Brigade, Bloodstrike, Berserkers, Blood Wolf, Rejects, Kaboom, uh, Prophet, Glory. I could go on and on. Uh, uh, Cyberpunks, War Child. Did I say Evangeline? All of these characters that I have in my, in my, my war chest, I'm, I'm planning to circle back that's kind of my 2022, you know, plan is to, to really go back at my catalog in a big way. What I have been doing now currently is indulging my, um, more of my, uh, sandbox, uh, opportunities, you know, uh, get these toys that may not be available to me in the future and play with them it, it, right now with, with GI Joe, the GI Joe stuff that I'm doing, Snake Eyes is a fulfillment, a culmination of a, a, a eight-year-old kid who was a super crazy G.I. Joe fan with the Kung Fu grip and the eagle eye. And he, he had Mike Power, the Atomic Man, who you never heard of, and Bullet Man, who you've never heard of, because I put these characters in what I call the Reagan-era Joes, the guys that launched in 83, 84, and had the cartoon and took the world by storm, the great American hero, or real American hero. Um you know, uh, th those characters, I've featured my 70s favorite characters with those characters, and it's fun. The old timers who get it really dig it, but there are people who like accuse me of why am I introducing these new, brand new characters of mine that look more like traditional DC superheroes, especially in regards to like somebody like Bullet Man or the um, villain that I introduced called The Intruder, and those are from the 70s, which, you know, again, if you're first uh, interaction with the GI Joe stuff is in the in 84 then then of course you you miss that uh that that is a generation way before you and being old man Liefeld I wanted to you know mash it all up and the guys at IDW and Hasbro have been great to me and have let me do that and next up I'm doing some stuff with Shield and the Crusaders these old Archie comics properties and I couldn't be more excited because I truly uh, just have such a deep passion for this stuff. This is the stuff I loved when I was a kid. And I, I, I say to people all the time, I still think I do fairly, you know, 
good work. I'm, I'm really critical of, of, of the quality of the work that I put out and with my creative team. And I think that I'm still doing work that is, um, that, that, that is on par with, with my, my prime. And so I want to play with these toys while before my eyes fail me, before my hands start shaking and the results are good. Like snake eyes. I, I, I look at that. I look at a, a snake eyes comic that was a GI Joe property that wasn't being embraced as much as it should be and could be. And, and, uh, we, we electrified the audience with, with the response was electric in, in regards to the amount of people who picked it up, who are checking it out, who many for the first time, many who are returning. So that's this lunchbox kind of bucket list experience that I've been pursuing the last two years. And again, with an idea that in 2022, I will really return the focus to the stuff that I created while I was at extreme. But after that, and after awesome and after fighting American, I was looking for, you know, bucket list as early as that period of my life, 1998, 1999. So I went ahead and, um, I am a tremendous fan of all the Jack Kirby DC comics that he did. Commandy, Demon, New Gods, Forever People, Mr. Miracle, but none do I love more than OMAC. OMAC. You're like, Rob, what is OMAC? O-M-A-C. OMAC. It's one of the earliest Kirby books that I got my hands on. And it is a bizarre but awesome uh, and what turned out to be futuristic uh, alternative that Jacket had planned for Captain America in the foreword to the OMAC uh, collection that DC did, Mark Evanier, who was an assistant to Jack Kirby prior to breaking into the uh, entertainment industry and becoming a giant producer of animation. He did Garfield uh, for many, many years on CBS. And Mark is a great historian. He wrote great comic books, uh, The DN Agents, Crossfire for Eclipse Comics, but he started out as an assistant uh, to Jack Kirby, literally in his house with him every day, doing whatever Jack wanted, whether it was talking comics, making copies, you know, uh, making him coffee, uh, what, whatever was needed by Mark. Mark was there to facilitate, and he had a really great father-son kind of relationship. I think it was very familial, and uh, I, I, I saw that relationship as a fan, when I would go to shows and I'd see Jack and Mark, and then as a professional, it continued. And then after Jack's passing, Mark is the trusted kind of, uh, you know, historian of the family by the Kirby estate, and and he uh, is is very knowledgeable, and is um, I mean he's the guy he he was the the boots on the ground right there with Jack. He saw it. He he watched so much of it, and when he writes about it, you should give it all the weight and all the credit that you can possibly. Um, imagine because it's, it's, he was there. It's true. He, he, uh, his relationship with Jack is the real deal. And when he writes these forewords and gives you a glimpse that, uh, OMAC was an idea he had for, for a futuristic Captain America, it makes sense because Buddy Blank is submitting himself to a experimental program exactly the way Steve Rogers did. And, uh, in this instant, OMAC, and let me tell you what OMAC stands for. OMAC is one man Army Corps, the One Man Army Corps, and there it was on the cover. It said it it outlined it underneath it. OMAC, One Man Army Corps. Well, he has a mohawk. He has some some armor, uh, you know, uh, pieces on his um, on his costume. He has like a, a cool gauntlets, and he's got this kind of like neck like breastplate. It, it's cool. He's a great character, 
And I wanted desperately, I felt like I was perfect to do an OMAC relaunch. And so I contacted DC in 98. I literally like feel like I am the one guy who could just do the very best one man army corps omac i have the love i have the passion i reread those eight issues because there was only eight when they initially um canceled it i reread those over and over i think the concept was completely and totally ahead of its time like so much that jack has done the eternals which was kind of semi disregarded in its time kind of came and went very fast is now uh, a, a giant piece of the firmament of the bedrock that that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is being built on, and it's going to backtrack into the titans of Marvel, and 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 when I mean the titans of the universe, and Thanos, and you know a lot of the stuff that Jack did was just so ahead of his time. He, you know, um, it's that line from uh, from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when Paul Newman says, you know. The rest of the, I got vision, kid, and the rest of the world is wearing bifocals, okay? The rest of the world's wearing glasses, but I got vision. That's Jack Kirby in a nutshell, and OMAC was ahead of its time, state-of-the-art, killer, amazing. Just love the art, love the comic, love the visual. Again, without the visual, I don't know that my um, complete lust for the character exists, but I sent in a couple of cool drawings one a really great montage of how i would display all the kirby villains because there were some really cool ones and was summarily turned down by dc again you got rob liefeld i've had something of a success in my uh comic book career and at that point i'm just looking to you know sandbox it you know bucket list it and yeah i was in my 30s and i was really really excited about this omac stuff and uh they said rob we're, we're not giving omac to anyone right now you know don't take it personally we wouldn't give it to alan moore either which i was like well that's you know maybe the dumber thing than not giving it to me is not giving it to alan moore but i guess you'd have to have alan moore call and ask to use it but i got the illustration it was a no and i hung up the phone and i was like wow that sucks nope no omac for me now uh part of the reason this was coming about i should put the other part it wasn't just a cold call it was they had just hired me to do a five issue i'm sorry a five page backup in in the new gods comic walt simonson had taken over in the new gods comic and was doing the primary um the front of the book and he was getting a series of back issues frank miller did one art adams did one and i did one so i figured i'm on the rolodex they put me in circulation to do a forever people job, which I did. And it's one I'm extremely proud of. I don't care for the colors. It was not a colorist I'd worked before, but I was told that the, she was part of the deal. It was, it was uh, mandatory. And the, 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 the book is, is Brown. It, it may be Orion and the new gods issue nine, but all the, 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 the colors are very Brown. They're just very Brown and kind of, um, Olive green is 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 the predominant colors that were used that when I look at it, it just feels brown and green to me, which is not necessarily the best color palette, but the line art, I mean, I roast the occasion. I love doing that stuff. So the the door was open. I'm doing some Kirby stuff. So that's when I go, well, why not do OMAC? Why not, you know, give me a shot on OMAC? And again, some summarily dismissed. The door was closed. No more to talk about. It was very firm. No. So, okay. All right, well, in the meantime, the Legion of Superheroes had had uh, kind of um, petered out and was not doing as well as um, 
it had in my youth where the Legion of Superheroes was so popular it demanded two issues a month to meet popularity. It was both Legion and Teen Titans had an 80s surge of popularity based on the creative teams. Marv Wolfman and George Perez had turned Teen Titans into must-read comic books, and so much so that they got a second series out of it, which, again, you are you are rewarded the second series in the same way that stuff is canceled, okay? Like I said, OMAC, after eight issues with Jack Kirby in 1975, was canceled. Now, in the, in the, in the flip of that, on the flip of that, when something does well, they expand it. Look at the X-Men, from one book to four books, to six books, to ten books. Spider-Man, four books in the 70s. I've covered this with you guys, you know? When you were successful, they gave you another um, at bat. And 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 with Legion, Legion had gotten two books, just like Titans. It was that popular. It was that rich. Uh, the creative team had just woven this amazing tapestry that combined this great um, space opera stuff with really kind of more Star Trek uh, exploratory, sci-fi, hard science, like really what would the future you know, look like in the 30th century, along with all these other fantastical elements. There was politics, um, you know, uh, it was just, what a great book. And I desperately felt that I would love to do something with the Legion of Superheroes. So much so that for my own pure enjoyment and pleasure, I did three Legion sample pages that to this day, I love. I have them in the drawer next to me. They are, they are, I, I, I tightly, tightly penciled them. I did not ink them. I uh, made Xeroxes them and then did kind of color guides based on my pencils and sent it in. And wouldn't you know it, another hard denial, uh, basically no thanks. Uh, thanks for the effort. You know, um, uh, we, we will, don't call us, we, we will call you. So, I mean, again, there it is. In 1999, I cannot uh, get through this barrier that is, it, it felt at that point, it felt uh, personal, which is fine. I, I, again, I'm in my thirties. My wife and I are starting a family. I had for the most part retired. I don't really do comics. I told you the burnout and it was real for, for even me. I extended into 99 doing a brand new launch of some characters that I loved called the rejects and that work that I was doing at that time in that rejects zero rejects number one, those books, all these rejects backup features that I was doing in the comics that I was publishing that represents to me, some of my favorite work that I've ever done to this day. I can grab those pages. I, I see more, um, that I like than, than I don't like. And that's not always true when an artist looks back on his work. But so I felt like, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, exercise some of these, um, you know, play with some of these toys being OMAC or Legion of superheroes. Again, I'm not asking to be the lead, the flagship artist on Superman. I'm just asking to do some of this stuff that you've got in your drawer that's collecting dust. And the editorial board was not uh, kind and uh, did not see fit to let me go beyond whatever the five page backup feature that I was doing in that Orion and the New Gods issue with the Forever People. Uh, about a year later, I would get a call to do a three-page part of a Christmas-themed issue of Spider-Man. Um, sorry, sorry, Superman of Superman that Jeff Loeb was writing, and I got to do a sequence where Superman throughout the issue is dropping off Christmas gifts, unique Christmas gifts that he picked out for each of the Justice League: Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. Mine was Aquaman. It was great. It was fun. I knocked it out. I, I again three pages. I'm extremely proud of because you got to maximize what you can do with three pages. So I had this 
interesting, uh, you know, dynamic where when they called me, I would, I would answer the ring of the bell. But when I was trying to pursue them, those were not available to me, which is very funny and very interesting. Uh, and so, so those, those projects didn't fly. So again, like my wife said, you should share these stories. You should share the the times that you were turned down. It's relatable. And I, I, above all else, I, I agree with her and they're, you know, warts and all leave it all out there. And, uh, so what, what, what's interesting is in 2004, and we're going to kind of get a sneak peek of the 2000s here, Bill Jemis called me. Uh, he was the publisher of Marvel Comics, and he had wanted me to come back and do an X-Force miniseries, of which I eventually worked out those details. I'll get, I'll get into more of, of what, in, what went into that when we circle around to that specific topic in the weeks ahead. But ultimately, I did that. It did very well. It launched very well. It, it, it moved more numbers than they had anticipated. My my editor told me this. My buddy Mark Miller told me this. They they thought it would sell in like the fifty thousands. It sold in the hundred thousands, which is again like really you didn't think that the guy who created X Force would move copies of X Force. But there was this you know this prevailing notion, and what I blame it on is the the poison of magazines like Wizard, which one guy uh, from uh, Wizard Magazine, a uh, guy named Jim McLaughlin, had told me in 1998, your box office poison. And I, he told me that to my face at the Oakland comic, uh, Wizard Wizard World, when, when it was still in Oakland. And I just looked at him, I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, your box office poison, man. You're just, it's, you know, it's time to admit. And I was like, this guy's crazy. Jim McLaughlin had no background in comic books. He'd come from like... Uh, collectible cards magazines he had come from the sports world and got his uh assignment at wizard and thought you know he was it was one of those deals where like well i i come from beckett's or whatever collectible card sports card magazine and and you guys are lucky to have me because i i come from sports and i'm going to now acclimate to comics and 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 make this a more professional you know uh uh outlook look i i when i met him he was young i'll even say naive and he was just passing along what he had been told to say in in the offices. But I do think that that was reflecting in the magazines. And I think this was a time in the late 90s that the hirings of Marvel and DC were reflecting what the magazines were saying. And if the magazine said something was hot, then it would be. And I'm going to tell you, I won't name names in this instance. But uh, it was very funny. Uh, a buddy of mine hired some somebody who he thought, based on the magazine saying was hot, was going to move him considerable numbers of his books. So he did that and he believed everything that the wizard staff was telling him in 1999 or telling their audience that this guy is hot and then found out the hard way through his um, big investment in him that this guy was not. The sales were terrible and the book had to be put in an, into cancellation mode very quickly because um, no matter what, and, and, and here's the thing, you don't know that that guy wasn't best friends with somebody on staff and agreed to help get him some work by saying, this guy is hot. And that is the the, the deception that goes on um, in circles like that, especially in, in, I think, the all-too-impressionable collectible circle. Now, we've all grown up. The internet has made us all smarter, made all of you smarter. You can't be played um, like that anymore, and retailers are overtly cautious. You definitely have to prove that you can move the needle now rather than have a group of you know, uh, essentially dopes tell you that, that somebody, uh, somebody was going to move the needle having never done it before. And then you go and go, Oh man, 
the the magazine says that that artist X is 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 some is is an artist that people will really like. So I'm going to go do that, and then it didn't happen or even come close to it, to, to the same results. Okay, so that was in my estimation that late '90s kind of. Uh, um, stink. Again, you got a guy who works at the magazine telling you your box office poison. Well, that reflects what the magazine is putting out. It's what they think at their desk, what they're putting out. And there's a bit of an agenda. Now, I'm going to tell you, that would only embolden me. And, and I'd be like, oh, come on, you guys aren't going to be the deciders here. You are not. I am the decider. You are not the decider. I will be the guy who decides. And I did. And when X-Force 2004, 2005 shipped, it was extremely successful for Marvel. Which then, uh, we also did a complimentary Shatterstar miniseries. My buddy Marat illustrated that. I love that miniseries. It's fantastic. Brandon Thomas did the uh, scripting over my stories. But at that time, I felt bold. Like, hey man, this is where I can cash in some chips. So I called up uh, Tom Brevoort and asked him if I could submit. Uh, actually, I think I just submitted it. <laughs> I said, here is my submission for a group of characters you have that you guys aren't doing anything with called the Liberty Legion. Now, I just lost you. You're like, the Liberty who? The, this Legion of Super? No, another Legion name, yes. But the Liberty Legion was introduced in the Invaders series, which chronicled the World War II exploits of Captain America, Bucky, uh, Submariner, and the World War II era Human Torch, which was not Johnny Storm. And so, uh, and they had, they, they had created a whole bunch of new fun characters and the Liberty Legion was part of them. And it was Patriot and Miss America and uh, Blue Diamond. And they were just, they were featured in a couple of one off offshoots titles in the seventies that Marvel had done. And I always had an affinity for them, especially the lead character Patriot. And so I had a story of them in the modern day, kind of what happened to them. Um, how did you know, life treat out, what, what did their careers look like? What, what separated them and what was about to bring them back together. And Tom Brevoort very kindly, very politely told me that they had something featuring those characters coming up with John, um, JMS, uh, J John Michael Straczynski, who I had really enjoyed all the stuff that he was doing in comics at the time. And, uh, and, and so that, that, that hit a quick and fast stone wall and, you know, they said it was, I think it was in a series called The Twelve that he featured those characters. But again, you know, just, just yesterday uh, in, 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 in bolstering my, my fuel to do this particular story in this podcast was after my wife said, you should share these stories is I saw Eric Larson recounted on Facebook that he had proposed a years long storyline in the late nineties when he was doing Wolverine, when he was doing Aquaman at DC and Nova also at Marvel, he had proposed a Hulk, um, multi-year saga and it was turned down. He, he said, you know, he gave the, the very specific particulars of what he wanted to do, how he wanted it to roll out all the different interactions. Very interesting. I suggest you hop on to Eric's Facebook page and, and, and check that out. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we don't always get what we want and we are turned down. And just like Eric's Hulk uh, proposal, my Liberty Legion proposal was not um, given a green light. Uh, ironically, Tom would offer me Marvel Team Up. Robert Kirkman, I think, had done 12 issues of Marvel Team Up. And uh, 
Tom Brevoort had contacted me saying, Rob, you would be perfect for this. I think it'd be perfect for you to pair different Marvel characters every month. And foolishly, it is one of those things, I've said this on Twitter for years, I definitely regret not doing that. I went over and did the Teen Titans at DC, which ultimately crashed and burned after two issues because um, that was my first interaction with the DiDio regime. And it was terrible and awful. And those podcasts will be fun um, because that that was kind of really uh, a two, two issues that I salvaged um, from the gates of hell, really. <laughs> That's how I see those Titans issues. But I let, I did that rather than do the Marvel team-up that Tom Brevoort had offered me. And I, I really am uh, remiss that that didn't come together. Finally, the last job I did not get was in 2018. I had set up a, a kind of a meeting with Jim Lee in his, you know, now... Uh, Grand Poobah, whatever the title is, um, uh, co-publisher, vice president title, and invited him up to my suite uh, at the hotel during WonderCon. And we just sat there and chilled and uh, caught up. And, you know, I I have a lot of history with Jim. I, I, I think Jim is a nice guy, you know. Sometimes I think that the, that the job in, at DC Comics has been maybe a, a bit too much, but on this afternoon, he was one of the gatekeepers. I would look to ask him because again, what do I, what is this scratch that I have? I have this Jack Kirby scratch that I want to itch in the worst way, or it's an itch that I want to scratch, whichever doesn't matter. The, the results are the same. I love Kirby's fourth world, the new gods, forever people, Mr. Miracle. And now Tom King had been doing a Mr. Miracle book that was very, um, I will call it kind of David Lynchian, avant-garde, not not on on kind of not in the same stratosphere as what Jack was doing with the book. It was a little different approach. It was cool. It was getting some critical acclaim and some certainly it got some buzz, and uh, and was very respected and well received by the audience that was um, interacting with it. But the larger canvas, which come on, the new gods and. And New Genesis and Apocalypse and all these characters, Orion, Light Ray, you know, Oberon, uh, uh, Metron, Darkseid, uh, Big Barda, uh, Desaad, Steppenwolf. These characters are being underserved. So I said, Jim, I would love the opportunity to do the New Gods, to do a fourth world book, to bring everything I have to bear. While I really believe I still have the stuff. I would love to do a New Gods comic and uh, be d- just really, really honor the King with like the best efforts I've ever put forth because I'm just feeling it. I just I have so much love for that stuff and really the designs of the New Gods characters are the stuff that um, is probably the most impactful on me. The headdresses, the headpieces. Um, you'll see that all in my work in Youngblood all, all the way through. Even it started, it starts kind of with Shatterstar in, in X-Force and goes to Shaft and, you know, all these other characters. Again, the headdresses, the headbands, the gear, the, the way that he would design costumes. It, the fourth world was so, you want to talk about ahead of its time, beyond ahead of its time, just like everything that I've spoken of with Jack today. It was almost in every case, 30 years or more ahead of its time. He, you know, I'm sure we're going to find out Jack was a time traveler or truly a God. Um, and Jim, 
very stoically said, yeah, that, that's not going to happen. We're not doing anything fourth world outside of Tom King. We're giving him kind of dominion over those characters because the trade paperbacks are really doing great numbers. We're getting great, re- you know, great going back to press on that stuff. People love that. And I go, yeah, but that's a completely different flavor. That's not anything like what I'm talking about. And uh, he, he literally, 24 hours before we met, they had announced the movie uh, that Warner Brothers had greenlit. And Jim said that no one in DC Comics even knew that that uh, movie was moving forward. I forget um, the 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 director that they had um, attached for, but it was, you know, um, it was announced. And, and uh, I, I think it's Eva... Yeah, she, she, uh, it's, I'm blanking. But they had a director, they had a canvas, they had a deal, they were going to go forward... Um, with the New Gods movie, and uh, Jim, had I had asked him, and he had said, we didn't know anything about that. We learned about that when it was in Variety. That was a deal done with the president of the studios, with the president of the studio, um, and the director. And um, so, yeah, you know, is it Ava DuVernay? Is that it? I'm, 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 I'm going to Google it right now, okay? Um Yes, Ava DuVernay is is was the director attached, and Jim said we did not know this was happening. Um, you know, we were not told at the rank and file level, but the president of Warner Brothers at the time, this is before the AT and T takeover, had done this deal with her separately, and 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 obviously it's a DC property, and then they were going to have to figure it out. But I said, hey, I will do a kick-ass New Gods, huge, and you know, to this day, I would love to, but I don't plan on it. That that was. Jim was very firm. We got we both exited my room to go down to the convention floor, got in the elevator. He re- reiterated that they were just going to stick with the Tom King vision at the time. And so, again, there it is. My wife would be so pleased. I have told you the jobs that got away, the jobs I was denied, turned down, um, not available, not accessible for me because I think that's relatable. It's real. Everybody's got a story of something that they wanted and some guys who I happen to know even in the last couple of years names giant names big huge names moving comics for you right now have been denied um what you would call like again dream jobs sandbox gigs uh bucket list um because sometimes it's just the guy who's got the power to greenlight it doesn't either believe in what you want to bring to it or has definite plans of his own so there you go guys those are that's about a half a dozen uh, jobs that I was not able to get. And you know what? You grind on, you move on, you, you you hit your marks as best you can with the rest of the work that you're doing. And something like, for me, S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Crusaders is exciting because I've literally had this story in my head since probably 15 years because I, I've always kept my eye on those characters. And it wasn't time for me to kind of step into the breach, but now it is. And it makes a difference. I think the work that I'm doing on those pages is as good as it is because my enthusiasm never died. It's still there. It's focused. So, you know, um, the best thing we could do is attach the guys who have the passion with the projects that they have passion for. So, but those are my strikeouts. OMAC, Legion of Superheroes, New Gods. Um, maybe there's a uniting force here. Maybe there is a underlying thread. Justice League way back in the day. I <clears throat> I don't do so hot at DC, Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that is a, uh, a a truth of my career. I don't do so hot at DC. I did a couple covers about two years ago. There's a great story behind that, and the guy that flipped his lid when I got those assignments, 
and then worked to get me taken off any other future assignments. So yeah, the animosity with DC and I uh, is apparently a real real thing. It's funny too. So we will de- dig deep into that in in the you know years, days, episodes to come. The bottom line is it was that period in 99 that I was just looking to have a good good time, man. You know, girls aren't the only ones who just want to have fun. Cindy Lauper, you know, I'm like, hey, man, I'd love to do the Legion, love to do OMAC, love to do, you know, whatever. And all of those doors were closed to me. I was not able to that, you know, that's okay. Things happen for a reason and they don't happen for a reason. But uh, wrapping up today's two pronged, the end of the 90s uh, podcast um, themed episode also with the end of the 90s when I was looking for some fun and, and the sandboxes were closed. They they put the fences around them and like, don't play in our sandbox, Liefeld. Keep on moving on. Now, I what, what I hope for all of you is that today you will keep on moving on. Um, get your stuff finished. You know, continue to pursue those goals. Uh, you know, work hard towards those goals. Do not give up the fight. Persevere. Um you use every creative solution that you have. Um, that is how I have lived my life and will continue to live my life. And I am so excited and so thankful that you guys listen to this podcast. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing uh, the, 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 the podcast with your friends. Continue to subscribe, spread the word. You please reach out, find me on social media, on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. So at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I have the blue checks on both. So you know it's me when we're talking. Um, Facebook, I'm all over there. I'm in tons of groups. I, I love social media. It's a great way to reach out and find you guys and talk to you guys. So uh, follow me on those platforms. I love to engage. Thank you for your time. Thank you for um building all the buzz and, and, and helping grow this podcast. You guys, you know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You are going to stay safe out there. And we are going to talk again real soon. 